Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. Today, I'm so excited to talk with James Gavin about his new book, George Michael, A Life. Welcome, James. Very happy to be with you today, Dan. Greetings from sunny Laurel Canyon, USA. (laughs) Wonderful. Yeah, it's warming up in the valley, too. I'm in Sherman Oaks, so we're close by. I so enjoyed reading this book. It it reminded me of my love for George Michael. Um, he had such an incredible life, and at least in my opinion, um, and of all the people who left us in 2016, his departure was one that I totally didn't expect, and it has stuck with me. Um, it's interesting that you should mention the people who left us at that time, because in that general vicinity of time, they included uh, David Bowie, Leonard Cohen, Prince, and Lou Reed, all more or less at the same time. Incredible. And, you know, for somebody who wasn't old at all, 53 is not old. We're talking about, you know, fortunately today we live a lot longer. So it was really quite a big surprise for me. It wouldn't have been a big surprise for the inner circle of George Michael, who had watched him self-destructing for a long time. Uh, but for the world, it was a shocker. And yet, given the way that he had treated his body for many years, I'm surprised he made it to 53. That was one thing, you know, when I was reading the book that I was really impressed by is the amount of abuse he did for himself. And I, I can never stress how important it is what happens to us as children to get a little bit preachy, you know, when you come up as a child and you're special, different, and you're not treated with love, his father certainly wasn't a loving character in his life. Um, It has an effect. And he had it from his mother, although um, exploring George's childhood was a fascinating thing. Very often in these stories, the first chapter it it can be boring because sometimes people have mundane childhoods and and it's not that interesting to read about who came over on the boat from where but uh the story of george's mother and father and their relationship with him is pivotal to this book the father was a greek cypriot immigrant to north london and a self-made man who became a successful restaurateur, restaurateur? I've never known the difference between (laughs) Works for me. I should have looked it up before we had this discussion, (laughs) but you know what I mean. And he he had a a son and and two daughters and a lovely home and provided George with a comfortable middle-class upbringing. But what he could not provide George with was a sense of nurturing and acceptance. And as George, discovered that he was different. He was very aware of the fact that his father did not approve of gay people and not to pin it all on his father. It was a generational thing. And 
His father was a manly man who believed that men were men and girls were girls. The mother was, in the, the early years of George's relationship with his beloved mother, Leslie, who died prematurely of, of cancer in 1997, devastating George. Uh, in the early years, the mother more or less went along with the father's homophobia, not because she was homophobic, but because her brother, Colin, George's uncle, was a gay man who took his own life and who suffered from mental illness and who knew great suffering in his life. And Leslie was uh, afraid, mothers always know, and Leslie was afraid that George might um, be, in, be, be in store for, for the same life of misery. And in fact, she was correct in that. But uh, George's uncle Colin was a haunting figure in his life. Let's not forget, too, that the, we're talking now about the, 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 seven, the late 70s, mid-late 70s and early 80s. And one must never forget how very different things were back then. Yes. Um, it being gay today in the pop music world is an asset. And back then it was uh, generally a career destroyer. Yes, and I've, uh, it hasn't been that long. George and I were born in the same year, and I remember the late 60s and early 70s very well. We were, gay people were made fun of. If, if there was any kind of representation in a movie or a TV show, we were always made fun of. And most of the references weren't directly. They were indirectly, which in a lot of ways is even worse. If you're going to talk about something, we should talk about it openly. But that wasn't the case. It was much easier. I also noticed that in looking at George Michael's life, we see sort of the same things here in the U.S. and I'm sure in Great Britain as well. But any anything that he did wrong was blown out of proportion and it was constant headline, headline, headline. And yet I learned so much about his charitable works in his uh, anonymous donations and stuff. Those are the things that oftentimes society doesn't want to read about. It can be like a byline. Well, you know that most celebrities who perform charitable acts do so for the photo op. They do it for the press release. They want it known that they are better than the rest of us, virtuous. George wasn't doing it for those reasons. He was doing it out of a wholehearted uh, impulse to help people, especially in later years when his musical career was going off track. I think George took great solace in being able to help people who were in need. And he gave away God knows how many millions of pounds to charities that he cared about. He was a good man. That was so impressive to me. Um, so his, he had a huge heart. I mean, it's very obvious. This isn't a person who wasn't, he was a very loving and kind person. You don't give away that kind of money and your talent without you having a good heart. And that was a nice thing to see in this book. He didn't want it known. He did it for pure reasons. He was annoyed when somebody 
the one exception to this and his relationship with Project Angel Food out here in LA was very well known and he he loved Project Angel Food and he supported them generously for many, many years. And it might even, I'm not, I should check on this, but it might even, the, the endowment might go on. He might, annual gifts might still come out of his estate. I, I think that's the case. But um, George never, for, for, despite the stratosphere that George lived in, which is in many ways so detached from reality, George was a quite humble man in many ways. He had expensive and beautiful homes, but they were not decorated in ostentatious ways. He wasn't looking to show off. Um, Elton John is so different from George in so many ways, but Elton John in many ways is the definition of ostentatiousness. Uh, Sure, and and spends he God the guy spends so much money. George, George, um, despite all his wealth, re retained his his humility. I guess part of that has to do with if you get kicked in the stomach enough in your life, then it really helps you stay humble, doesn't it? I think it does. I think it does. And you know, I, I. It's hard to talk about someone else's mental health, but he certainly had some very highs and some very lows. A lot of that he brought on himself, but a lot of it, you know, with his arrest uh, in Beverly Hills, and then he wanted to do charity work for Angel Project Food, and the judge puts a halt to that. Yet again, here is somebody who has to do community service and is trying to do something for a charity he likes, and yet he's not able to do that because the judge needs to make an example of him. And there again is another way, you know, he sort of kicked down once again. And it's just, it, that part was sad to read about, but also enlightening because, you know, if you're going to look at someone's life in a biography, you need to see the good and the bad and the ugly. It needs to all be seen. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree with you. When I wrote my Chet Baker biography, which came out in 2002, um, it's a very dark story with black humor, but not a lot of yaks in it, believe me. And um, I am fascinated by all of it. I am not the kind of fan who lives vicariously through my subjects. And if you say something un becoming of the subject, I take it as a personal uh, blow. There are a lot of fans like that out there. God knows George has them. I to be an artist like George Michael and to communicate what he, he did, and the same is true of my other subjects, biography subjects, Peggy Lee and Lena Horne. I'm fascinated by all of the darkness. I'm fascinated by the flaws. If you remove one of those, you will not have the same art coming out of them. Um, I'm happy, very gratified that in the end, George is, is, is thought of by people in happy terms. The name itself brings happiness out in people. The sound of his voice brings good feelings out in people. All of the tragedy, all of the missteps, all of the public humiliations could have won out and they didn't.
And that is a nice thing. And I agree with you. When I hear his, the sound of his voice is so lovely and is so beautiful. And it takes you back to that time, you know, when you experience that. And there are songs that are really, really happy and fun. And there are songs that are really deep and emotional. And he hit all of those emotions perfectly, to me anyway, because I just, I love his voice. You can't sing about the darker feelings unless you know them, though. You can't fake it. A good actor, I suppose, could fake it, but it comes off in the end as acting. Uh, the happiest George ever was, creatively, he said, was during the Wham! period. And it was after, it was starting with the faith period that the pressure was really on because George had set a goal for himself to become the biggest star in the world, literally. And for a time, he attained that. But what people who set that goal for themselves don't realize is that the fine print of the contract is punishing. And in George's case, that meant that the tabloids would be on his ass from the beginning. Yes. A, a sidebar to what I just said, I did a lot of research in 2018 at the British Library in London. And I looked at, well, I came home from that trip with 800 George Michael articles. Wow. The columns, the tabloid columns, which I thought had been relentlessly trying to out George from the beginning were not. For the initial period of his in fact, his white hot period, those columns were pairing him with all these beautiful girls. They were going along with it because those columnists just want to fill their columns with juicy tidbits. The truth is not an issue there. And so you had George uh, paired romantically with people like Brooke Shields. And that little association with Brooke Shields lasted a week. And boy, did the columnists run with that. Brooke was into it, so she says. Brooke, Brooke thought that this was love and or could be, and George just wanted out. <laughs> but, but he and a, especially his publicist at the time, a woman named Connie Filippello, sent out these stories because the heterosexual sex god image was crucial to what George wanted to attain. In other words, George made a pact with the devil, as yes. superstars or aspiring superstars tend to do. And then it's after that that you begin to feel the flames licking at your feet that you, uh, that you become worried. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and you know, press is what it is. You know, we, to be the biggest in the world, you really do have to have press. And you have to sort of go along with it. If the mood right now is linking you with Brooke Shields, then you go with it because that's what you want to get to the top. And as a, I think as a public, we often want people to be happy. Not everyone does, but I think the average Joe on the street wants people to be happy. So if we see George Michael and with a beautiful woman, we want him to be happy the press not always so because you know they need to sell copy but we do want to uh, we want our favorite artists to be happy because we want to enjoy their success and 
it's it is a double-edged sword often you know um i know you and i both know quite a few jazz artists i know that's how i met you originally and we know that so many of them work their behind off their entire life to be very small they too would like to be you know incredibly successful that's what artists want we want to create art but we also want to be a success at creating that art yeah you're raising a very interesting point because i've been in it i've been around the jazz world since i was in my early 20s and i've observed a lot of those very conflicted stories now i'm not that into the jazz that's being most of the jazz that's being made today because the school of hard knocks the jazz life as they used to call it while uh it was a really hard road it created the jazz that i love it gave juice to that playing it um it's it's part of the reason why when you hear oh i don't know lester young or coleman hawkins play you feel an instant tingle because they are they are playing some truth that is life coming out of those horns it's not the same if you're a graduate of the berkeley uh school of music or juilliard and putting a horn to your lips you will know that instrument uh um, inside out and, and backwards but what do you have to play about once in a while there's some innate spark inside that comes through but more often it results in what i call um museum jazz conservatory jazz jazz at lincoln center for example yes. whole scene doesn't interest me at all um and george knew about pain he knew about intense inner struggle and he sure knew about self-hatred because that was probably the single biggest driving force in his life it's what drove him to become the star that he became because as he himself said people who pursue stardom at that that colossal level have have such an empty space inside them that needs to be filled with such enormity and they are in many cases broken people that are looking for the approval of millions of strangers in george's case he got it and it didn't work that too is a double-edged sword you know i think the bigger the audience typically the lonelier it is and i'm interested it was very interesting to hear you say that he loved his wham period and i often think that when there are two people standing on stage instead of one headliner it tends to make it a little easier because you feel like someone has your back and I, it's one of the things about jazz, the collaboration. So you see a lot of different people play together and they have a collaborative thing. <laughs> I also love the fact that I learned, I mean, I know most of the songs, but I didn't always know who was on them. I learned that John Altman was on uh, one track. John, yeah, just a few nights ago in London. Oh, lovely. So yeah. it was really nice to see that, you know, all genres of music cross at some point, but George Michael certainly had a lot of talent around him. He was so incredibly talented, but it was nice to see that um, that talent was all across the board, and that was a nice thing. 
I agree wholeheartedly with all of that. He had a very, very firm sense of the way he wanted things to go. The musicians that he hired were there because they carried out his vision. Of course, he drew from them. Of course, they made crucial contributions to his work, but George knew exactly the way he wanted things to go. One of the interesting aspects of this story is that his methodical, extremely considered approach to making music, but also turning himself into a star, he had it, he had a plan, he had it mapped out. He followed this through to the nth degree and it worked. And the same meticulousness with which he created George Michael, he used it to dismantle George Michael. Well, I was about to compare you slightly with George Michael, but I don't want that last part to be the case. <laughs> you have to do sort of the same thing, though, when as a biographer. You have to be meticulous and you have to have a plan. I, in reading this, I did enjoy it very much, James, but I will say that I was very sure that there were multitudes of hours put into this because when you're a biographer, it isn't, I don't want to, it's different than writing a novel. You're, you have to put in that work to bring about a biography of a person that the public knows. And I certainly enjoyed it. And I can tell that your hours of work has turned out nicely. And I'm very proud of you. That's awfully kind of you to say, Dan, because it was like rolling a boulder up a hill for five <laughs> years, this book. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Getting people's cooperation was hard. Getting their trust was hard. I learned very early on that there's a difference between a legend, and I wrote biographies of three legends, and a mm -hmm. superstar. Superstars are in a whole other realm of protection and um, barriers that I had to somehow break through. And George lived a lot of his life in hiding. And even when he forced himself out of the closet in 1998 in a most unflattering way, he was so accustomed to, to hiding, to secrecy, and I get shame is tied in with all of that, that his personality, his approach, his, his attitude towards all of those things didn't, didn't change. This man is so filled with fascinating conflicts. He, he went through a period, as you know, in the early 90s when he didn't want to talk to the press. You couldn't get an interview with George Michael. And he was trying to live in secrecy, but he was bursting to tell his story. He wanted people to understand him. He, he felt so misunderstood, so disconnected, so lost. And then as the years went on, he talked his face off. And then when he covered Twitter, he became a Twitter junkie. And, and people reveal much too much about their own personal lives on social media. George lived in a, he had multiple homes, a home in the very glamorous hills, hilltop neighborhood of Highgate Village in London was one of them. And I stood in front of that house in 2018 and I saw that um, while there is a black gate in front of the house, it's not like 
being in Beverly Hills or Bel Air. George did have one of those more somewhat more secluded homes in Beverly Hills for, for years. But, but in the Highgate Village house, you could stand in front of it and clearly see it's right there. He, here's, here's the gate, there's the door. And you could see his comings and goings. And if you were waiting in the bushes to catch a picture, you would get it. If you wanted to talk to him as he exited uh, and get an autograph, he would give it to you. He was a gentleman, George. That's, that's lovely to hear. Yeah. It's, uh, that's, it, it gives a nice human side to him. George's story is filled with humanity. Um, it's it's so obvious when you hear him sing that this is a guy who knows what what pain is about. One of the things, Dan, I'm digressing here a little bit, but one of the things that dismays me about commercial pop music of today is that the humanity has been siphoned out of it by corrective devices and by electronics, and it must be reflective of some larger cultural um uh truth but when i listen to the kind of music that's televised on the grammys and the american music awards and all of that i i have stopped feeling out of touch and left behind with that music because i realized that that music I listen to music to be touched. I want to feel that human connection when I hear a voice. You always felt that with George Michael, even though he used electronics to achieve certain effects. It was all supposed to be a man singing from his heart, and that's what it was. And uh, I detest auto-tune. <laughs> I, I hate what it does to the sound of the human voice. No voice sounds like that. No. no one sings perfectly in tune all the time. Singers are not robots. Uh, and to me, one of the glories of George's music is its humanity. That's why it touches people's hearts. I totally agree. I totally agree. James, thank you so much for chatting with me. I am are we done? I thought we were started. Well, you, can, you may always come back anytime you want. Trust me. You, I have just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book. I enjoy you. I enjoyed uh, George's music. And I hope success all the way around. Dan, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for caring and thank you for being a great listener and, and questioner. I appreciate and value all those things. Thank you. Hang on for me and I'll be right back. Thank you for joining us with Out With Dan. See you soon. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out With Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com on Twitter at OutWithDan, and on Instagram and Facebook at GoOutWithDan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.